Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Antioch. It's funny, it's like uh, being at Imago, where I come in and we're at the very beginning of the service and I don't see a whole bunch of people. And so it's usually to my back. And then when I stand up and get ready to speak, everybody's here, (laughs) which is good because, you know, it's always good to have some human beings there. Now, I am a black woman, as most of you can see. And so I'm perfectly okay with you laughing out loud, saying amen out loud, talking back, putting your hands up. I won't freak out. I won't be worried about those things. I won't call security, I promise. (laughs) And I want to thank Pete for inviting me to come here. I love being at this place. This church, every time I come here, um, it just, it feels like what church is supposed to feel like you know, which is always just a, a, a good meal enjoyed with great family. So I want to begin with a prayer, and it is a, a, a prayer um, by the Maasai tribe in Tanzania. And Carl Barth actually talks about prayer, and he says, you begin with prayer, he says, because to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So I want to begin with this particular prayer because these people are currently struggling with their very own government to keep from being moved off of their their ancestral home and moved to another place because some folks want to do some big game hunting. So they're just trying to move these people away from where they live in the place that they call home. But the thing I appreciate about this prayer is that it kind of encapsulates what we're going to talk about today. So the Maasai prayer is titled, Make Us Instruments of Your Faith. For your blessing, we thank you, God. Faith in you. Increase it, we beg, so that we no longer doubt. Drive out all our miserliness so that we do not refuse you anything. Increase our faith. For the sake of those without faith, make us instruments of your faith. For those with only a little, fill our bodies with faith, our bodies that work for you all our days. Help us to avoid the enemies of our faith or to overcome them. You are with us in confrontations. This we believe. In your hands we place ourselves, and we secure, and we are secure. Make haste to enter our hearts. Make haste. So we're in the second week of ordinary time here at Antioch. And last week, Sean took on the Trinity, which, yay, Sean. (laughs) So glad that was not my week. Um, But it was a perfect and, and, and good foundational place to begin because God is nothing if not relational. As a matter of fact, the very glory of God um, could not be understood without the cry and the shout of God saying relationship, relationship. So our text is Luke 8 today. It's a well-worn passage. 
this passage in Luke 8, and I'm sure many of you have read it, been through it, heard it preached a million times. 30 years ago, there was an ad campaign put out by Kellogg's cereal when cornflakes started to get a little boring for people and the sales were a little low. And what they did was they got different people, just regular Joes and this one particular guy who'd eat a bowl of cornflakes and he'd go, you know, this is, you know, they're going to need something else for this, raisins, nuts, something. So he eats it and he says, this is good. It's not plain. It's good. And then the, the ad line says, Kellogg's cornflakes, taste it again for the first time. <laughs> I bring this up because I want you guys to feel that way about this passage. I want you to taste it again for the first time. I don't want you to suspend what you already know to be true about this passage or what you suspect about it, but rather I'd want you to submit yourselves to your imaginations. Take your intellect and put it in the hand of your imagination and submit your understanding to your curiosity as we unpack this passage today. I want you to be like C.S. Lewis's Lucy that you would feel in the back of the wardrobe and that you would find that there's no wall there, but that there is something beyond it. Because there is something calling us to the beyond right now. This world is in a ridiculous upheaval in so many different ways. And the normal is giving away, giving way to the new. We feel, don't we? We sense the, the forefinger of God just kind of doing this and calling us in to something new. So I want you to come into this story, um, but I want you to enter it for what's beyond the actual story. Now, we, we heard our text, and we began the text with Jesus stepping off the boat and onto the shore of the Lake of Galilee, where he is met by a demon-possessed man from the town. He doesn't even have a name. And actually, it seems like we're starting at the beginning of a story, but we're actually starting in the middle of a story. And so it, we're, we're technically, we're starting the way Luke has written it, in the middle of a four-episode miniseries. But more about that later. Right now, what you need to know is what happened immediately before this. Jesus was on the ship, and he's got the disciples, and there was a huge storm. Yet another well-worn passage of scripture. There was a huge storm, and, the, and the, uh, the disciples are afraid, and they're freaking out, and Jesus speaks to the storm. He rebukes the storm, and he calms it. And the disciples were in fear and amazement because the storm obeyed Jesus. And so then he gets off the ship the next morning and the story begins to develop because it is the same Jesus who was there in the storm with the disciples is now the Jesus who is there when a storm is inside someone. So that's what we're looking at. It's the same story, only the circumstances are, are similar, but not quite the same. In both cases, everyone is in a situation that's out of their control. In both cases, they are out of options. And in both cases, 
Jesus shows up in this encounter. But the difference is, is that with the disciples, they assume a relationship with Jesus that makes them go to him. And they say, don't you care that we're dying? They assume a relationship and they have expectations that match the assumptions of their relationship. But this man that Jesus meets, he's beyond that. He doesn't have that. Life is harder for him. So who is this man? He's, he's a man who has given up on himself and he's given himself over to what's happening inside of him. Verse 27 says, for a long time this man had not worn any clothes or lived in a house. He had lived in the tombs. This is a man who has no dignity, no community, and he's living among the dead. He's living like he's dead. God said in the book of Genesis, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Jesus says in the New Testament, I came that you would have life and that you would have life more abundantly. And then Paul says in the book of Galatians, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This man's existence is the opposite of what is said by God, by Jesus, by the Spirit. He is the opposite of the Imago Dei. His life is consumed by, defined by, and in bondage to his demon possession. He doesn't even use his own name. He is identified by his circumstances. In scripture, we call him the demon-possessed man. We don't know if he's Fred or George or Jacob or whatever. We call him the demon-possessed man. As so many people in scripture are called the woman with the issue, the woman taken in adultery, the man who was born blind. They don't have names. And yet we are, we are called to actually relate to them. And it's actually a little easier, I think, if they don't necessarily have a name that makes it possible to relate to them. But this man is identified by his, his circumstances. And according to the book of Mark, he has superhuman strength, but he can't keep from hating or hurting himself. He's breaking chains, but only so that he's just strong enough to cut himself with stones. He's not even speaking as himself. He's speaking for the demon. Now, it's easy for us to distance ourselves from this guy, right? Because we are talking in this passage specifically about a man who is possessed by demons. And demon possession is a very real thing. And so we look at ourselves and we go, well, I'm not demon possessed. I'm not running naked. I'm not running among the tombs. I'm not outside of community for the most part. I'm not making an unholy spectacle of myself. But remember, we are reaching with Lucy Pevensey's hands and we're feeling for what's beyond the four walls of this man's circumstance to find the hidden story in his story, the one that is meant for each of us and for all of us, the one that will connect us to him. Because compassion, says Frederick Buechner, is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live in someone else's skin. Not to say that I know how you feel, but to say that I feel what you feel. When we can do that, then we can come home to our truest selves. 
So my question for you, have you ever lived outside of God's design for you? Have you ever resisted belonging, resisted becoming? Have you ever made decisions that have harmed yourself or harmed others? Have you ever done things that have separated you from others? Have you ever felt desperate or out of control? Have you ever given up on yourselves or given up on others, been given up on? Have you ever been isolated or be overcome with loneliness? Do you know what it's like to be in bondage, to be addicted to anything? Has trauma ever caused you to behave in a way that you cannot manage it, no matter how hard you try? It brings to mind what Paul says when he complains in Romans 7, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I've been there where Paul is. I've been where this demoniac is. I have been subject to death, living without actually living, choosing ways that seem right but that lead to death. I've been without hope. I've turned away from the better but often harder way. I've been desperate. My demons have not always been so outwardly offensive to other people, but they're just as unholy. My demons have made me hate myself and hurt myself. My demons have tortured me with shame, and they've driven me out of loving relationships and into unloving relationships. And I know I'm not alone. Like that man, our demons plague us. And we fight some and we give in to others. And like Paul, we struggle. But I want to pull out here in this passage. I want to pull out um, and put this story into context because it's a part of a whole story. Luke is the master of the story within the story. You'll find as you read the book of Luke that he always has these very large themes and then within the theme he has these smaller stories because he's trying to make a large point and then he makes that large point over and over and over and over again. It was a, it's a very Jewish thing to be able to just kind of punctuate the things that he's trying to say and he's trying to make the larger point. But if you don't pull out from this story, you'll actually miss the larger point because while it's there in the story of the demonic man, it's not mentioned by name. It's kind of like the book of Esther. I don't know if you, when you read the book of Esther, you notice that you don't see God's name mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, and yet you see his fingerprints all over the entire story. And so this is one of those stories where you don't necessarily see what the larger picture is about, but it's all over the story. And so when you look at the other three stories, they make up this cluster of four stories of four desperate people 
who encounter Jesus. You have the disciples in the storm, which comes before that, and they're desperate. And right after our demoniac, who is also desperate and encounters Jesus, you have the woman with the issue of blood, who is desperate, who has spent all of her money, and who encounters Jesus. And then you have Jairus, whose daughter is dying, and he is desperate. He is a leader in the synagogue, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, I'm desperate. I need you to take care of my daughter. I need you to heal my daughter. And what does Jesus say in these encounters? Well, in three of the four, in the first one, he says to the disciples, where is your faith? In the story with the woman of the issue of blood, he says to her, go in peace. Your faith has made you whole. And to Jairus, he says to him, just believe when they tell him your daughter is already dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So these are four stories about faith. Even though the word is not mentioned in the story of the demoniac, it is there. And it is important to understand that faith is not, and, and it is never, theoretical. Faith is not just informational. Faith is not a thing that you just talk about as a thing. Faith is invitational. And I think that that's part of the reason why the word isn't there in that second story, because you see the invitation of it, you see the effects of it, you see the action of it. There's a, a pastor and teacher named Crawford Loretz who says, faith is a verb even when it's a noun, because it can't be seen apart from action, right? And so even if we don't see if we don't see this story in the larger context, then we can't see what we are being called to as we look at this story and as we reach within this story, that we are being called to faith. So now let's go back to our story as we look at it through the lens of faith. So when you have faith, it moves you closer to Jesus, not further away. When you look at the disciples, they're afraid and they go closer to Jesus. The woman with the issue, she's afraid. She moves closer to Jesus. Jairus, he is afraid. He moves closer to Jesus. And when you move closer to Jesus, you see what you didn't see before. Our demoniac man actually moves. It says that he is the one who approaches Jesus when Jesus comes off the boat. Jesus doesn't go to him, he comes to Jesus and he falls on his knees. And so he comes and he gets to Jesus and you can see when you get closer to Jesus what you couldn't see before, that Jesus sees you and that Jesus has got you. Jesus says to the man, he says, what is your name? And the man says, Legion, because there were so many demons. Now let's think about that for a second. This man is overcome so much so to the point where he identifies himself with what is happening to him. Who are you? I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a victim. I'm a survivor. And we attach ourselves to our circumstances in such a way that we forget who we are apart from our circumstances, apart from our struggles, apart from what's going on in our lives. I love how Jesus asks him his name and he never uses it. He says, what's your name? 
but he never calls him what he says, I'm legion. And the reason is because Jesus understands the difference between a person and a problem. Because legion is nothing in the face of love. Even when we can't tell the difference between our personhood and our problem, Jesus sees it. Because a problem is a thing to be solved and a person is someone to be loved. Not just fixed, but healed. Not just managed, but delivered. The people in the town just tried to chain him up or just tried to manage him, put him in a place. But Jesus says, no, he needs to be free. Not pushed away, but brought near and transformed and then sent out to give the gift of yourself to the world. In the face of love, when we come closer to Jesus, we find that our weaknesses are actually transformed into vulnerability. And what's the difference? Weakness says, I can't do anything for you. But when we own our vulnerability, we're saying, you can do anything with me. It connects me to you when I am vulnerable. Because vulnerability is the soil into which God plants the seeds of belonging. The same heart which has left us open to hurt is the same one which declares it is open to be loved. When faith moves us closer to Jesus and we see love that leads to healing and belonging and freedom, we understand what the disciples understood, what the demonic understood, what the woman understood, what Jairus understood, that Jesus is Lord over everything. Whether it's on a ship where he is the Lord over creation, whether it's with the demonic where he is Lord over the devil, whether it's the woman with the issue where he's the Lord over disease, whether it's Jairus, his daughter, where he is the Lord over death. Jesus is the Lord over everything. And now you see how those four, those four stories go together to make this larger point. If you believe, then Jesus is Lord over all. And it is also a foreshadowing of the cross because on the cross, Jesus defeats and, and proves himself Lord over all things, over creation, over disease, over the devil, over death. This is a foreshadowing of the victory of the cross in these four stories. And finally, when you move close and most importantly, you realize that Jesus with faith becomes the Lord over you. Now, when you look at what happens to this man, life as he knew it, as he understood it, is changed forever. When you make that decision to approach Jesus and he becomes Lord of your life, everything you knew is different. And that is scary. But that fear, with that faith, draws you closer to Jesus. Contrast what happens to the townspeople. Now think about what they saw. They saw, it says, when they came to him, they saw this man sitting. He was clothed, he was in his right mind, and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus because he's now a disciple. This man that they were so used to just being a nut job all over the place is now a completely different person. And they look in the river and they say, two thousand 
pigs, floating, dead. Think about what that looked like. Not six or seven, not one, 2,000 pigs. Their lives as pig farmers, they're looking at it just float away. Life as these Gentiles knew it would never be the same. And it made them afraid. But theirs was fear without faith. And what did they do? They put some distance between themselves and Jesus. They said, you got to go. You got to get out of here. This is not okay. They were not ready for Jesus. And so our demoniac actually wants to go with Jesus. He's like, look, I'm in. I want to go with you. And Jesus says to him, no, no. I need you to stay here and tell people what God has done for you. Because when God is the Lord over your life, you go where he says go, not where you want to go. It would be so easy to sit with our Bibles every day and just read our Bibles and listen to poetry and songs and things like that. But God is saying, go out. And the things that I've healed you from, the things that I've told you in your ear, go out and tell people what God has done for you, has done in you, so that I can do those things in their lives through you. Go and do that. I always think about this filter through which I do everything. It's the will of God in the person of Jesus Christ with the witness of the Holy Spirit. What is the will of God in my life? How does the person of Jesus Christ live that will out? And what is it that the Holy Spirit will empower me to do because of it? So this man sticks around and he becomes the first Disciple to the Gentiles. He preaches and he tells people, this is what Jesus did for me. I love how Jesus said, go tell them what God did. And he says, I will tell them what Jesus did. Because there's really no difference. Because it was the will of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit witnessed through this man. Now, when you look at the passage in Mark, you see the story. By the time you get to Mark 7, you have in Mark 5, you have people sending Jesus away. And the people in that area are like, we want nothing to do with you. Jesus goes back to around that area about Mark 7. And people are bringing their children and their blind people and the people who need healing. They're bringing them to Jesus. One can only assume this happened because of the witness of this man that things were changed in that city. Because here's the thing, what God has taken you through, what he's brought you out of, what he's healed you from, what he's touched in your life, what he's shaped in you, all of those things become a gift to all of the people who are in your life. Henry Nouwen says the great illusion of leadership is to think that a man can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. You've been through some things. And God will navigate your steps into the path of people who are going through those things. Look at your life. 
Look at your whole life. The good, the bad, the ugly, the struggles, the difficult places, the confusion, the things that you're not certain of. And with all that seems to weigh on you, ask yourself the question, where is your faith? And if you have it, you allow it to bring you closer to Jesus so that you can see that he is not just Lord over your life, but that he is Lord over everything. I want to end with a Franciscan blessing that I've been chewing on for the last couple of months. And I think that it, it says what it is God is calling us to in this season, in this place. It says, may God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for freedom, justice, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that you may reach out your hand and comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. That is my blessing to you. Amen.